This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. The 2020 English Australian Easter Yearling Sale will offer 514 yearlings of the highest quality. The sale features siblings to 181 stakes winners, including 52 Group 1 winners, as well as the progeny of 170 stakes winning mares. 58 high-profile stallions will be represented. Those with the largest consignments are Schnitzel, I Am Invincible, Capitalist, American Pharaoh, Not A Single Doubt, Fastnet Rock, Sebring and Exceed and Excel. The progeny of 15 first season sires will go under the hammer. The 2020 English Australian Easter Yearling Sale will be conducted over two days, Tuesday, April 7, Wednesday, April 8 at the world-class Riverside Stables Complex at Warwick Farm. Selling will commence on both days at 10am. It's a stunning catalogue. Before her nasty fall at Doombin last October, Tegan Harrison had been around horses for most of her 31 years without breaking a major bone. She broke her nose on one occasion when she parted company with a jet ski. But in 10 years of race riding, her worst injury had been a fractured collarbone sustained when a horse knuckled over after passing the winning post at Ballina in 2017. But she paid all of her dues with interest at Doombin in October last year when she was involved in a four-horse accident at the 800 metres mark. She was knocked out on impact and sustained multiple injuries. Five fractured vertebrae, fractured sternum, broken ribs, broken collarbone and severe concussion. But more than four months on and tough, tenacious Tegan has overcome most of the injuries, but her right collarbone requires more time and more physiotherapy. For a girl who didn't even like thoroughbreds as a teenager, she's done a remarkable job to win around 650 races and has earned the respect of owners, trainers and fellow riders. In 2014, she went very close to winning two Group 1s, the Stradbroke and the Doombin 10,000 on her all-time favourite, Temple of Boom. As she patiently sits out the latter stages of rehabilitation, Tegan has been giving riding lessons to young people who live on the Gold Coast hinterland where she and partner Ben Hull have a small property. Once Tegan gets back to race riding, she'll be hard to pin down for a podcast interview, so I'm getting in while the going's good. Tegan Harrison, good morning. Good morning, Mr Tapp. Lovely to talk, mate. Your life revolves around horses. In fact, as we speak, as we record, you've just picked up a 12-hand pony from somewhere in New South Wales. Yeah, that, that's right. I was, um, I'm lucky enough to have been around horses all my life and I feel a little bit lost when I'm not around horses. So in my time off, I've still been heavily involved with horses, a little, little bit to do with a few thoroughbreds off the track, but we're just um, trying something different here and we've got a, an unhandled 12-hand high pony and we're going to take it up home and put it in a stable and slowly just work on it and, and uh, Ben will break it in and go from there and hopefully this time mm. next year you see it out in the show ring doing well. Mm. 
and that pony is standing on your trailer as we speak. Yep, it's got no head collar. Um, we opened up all the bays for it and we literally had to get it onto the float uh, like how they run cattle Yeah. And because it's it's literally unhandled. It's never had a hand laid on it in its life, but but he coped very well. He's, he's a little uh, colt at present, but we'll be getting rid of them on Tuesday. Mm. And, um, yeah, he's on the float and he's he's not even moved. He's He's been a really good little boy. Had it not been for complications with that right collarbone, you'd be back riding by now. The surgeons had to perform a revolutionary procedure in which they've given you, and this is a Donald Trumpism, a fake ligament. C- yeah, can you explain um, that? It's very interesting, my injury. It, it's actually my left clavicle. So, oh, right, yeah. Um, but it's a very, it's very interesting injury. Uh, what happened was... I obviously broke it, but on top of that, my ligament had torn off the bone. Yeah. So within a week of, of being home from hospital, my whole bone had shifted back towards my neck and was giving me a lot of pain. Mm. Uh, we went to see a specialist and I'm lucky because he'd actually, I'd had surgery with him before on my previous collarbone break and he's renowned for being very good at what he does. And so what he's done, he's, He's put a plate in over the broken part and then placed a fake ligament where my ligament had torn off the bone. Ligaments can be very hard to heal. So putting this in place is just gives me a bit, better chance at recovering 100%. Apart from that Ballina tumble in 2017, you've had a pretty trouble-free run. In fact, you were telling me you were starting to believe you were almost invincible. I'm not going to lie. I'm, um, <laughs> I can be a bit of a daredevil off the track too. And I, I just, I was starting to think that my bones were unbreakable. And obviously, <laughs> obviously, I was wrong there. But, um, but yeah, I've still certainly been blessed with the injuries that I have that they weren't worse off um, after my doom and fall. But, but, um, but yeah, I thought leading up to that stage, I had a really good run and and no no breaks. And I'm sure, as you'd know, a lot of jockeys. Um, when you have a fall, most of the time you do come out with with something broken, and I'd been lucky to have plenty of falls. I'd had race falls even, and mm. and sort of bounce back up and away I go, but didn't quite bounce back up as quick this time, and I'm going to have no. to be a little bit patient on my return. Most people in racing look upon you as a native Queenslander, but that's not the case. You were born and reared in Grafton, the only child of Andrew and Bev Harrison, who now live at Lawrence near McLean. Your mum was a jockey. She rode successfully around the Northern Rivers under the name of Bev Want. Had she finished riding before you were born? No. Um, so I was pretty lucky to have some very early experience in race riding with my mum. She actually rode with me in her belly and she rode pregnant. So Good heaven. Uh, I was lucky enough. Now, I get this story a little bit muddled up, but it went something along these lines. I won the South Grafton Cup inside of her belly on flashing red. Oh, you're kidding. But then I think we may have, I may have said this publicly and we may have found out it may not have been that race. It might have been another race, but yeah. we're going to run with that because that was a good race to win. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, it was, it's quite cool. I've, I started off in, inside mum's belly on, on the racetrack. So you have, in fact, ridden a South Grafton Cup winner. Well, since I've actually ridden one, in my jockey career, I've, so we 
we like to say I've had a couple. <laughs> yeah, good I didn't you. get my name on the board, though, just mum. Gee, that's a great story. And what, was she mid-term at the time? I've got no idea. I'd have to go into the details with her. But, yeah, it went yeah. something along those lines. And I, I do I do vaguely recall um, to when mum tried to return to racing, I was often babysat mm. in the jockey's room and um, – my mum, my mum rode, and also my my godmother. She she was a jockey then also, which was at a time when it was very hard for female jockeys. Oh, and yeah. I owe a lot of, um, you know, I owe it to a lot of the likes of Pam O'Neill, uh, Julie Shepherd, my mum Bev Want, you know, mm. Bernadette Cooper. All these ladies rode when it was really tough for female riders, and if it wasn't for them, we all wouldn't be getting the opportunities that we get now today. Your mother, you mentioned the horse, Flashing Red. Mum won a stack of races on him. He was a marvellous old bush horse. She won two Inverell Cups on Flashing Red. Yeah, she she won um, Inverell Cup, Lismore, Ballina, and mm. sort of set out my early goals when I started racing was to try and a bit of friendly rivalry with my mum to try and win all these cups myself, and I've been – Fortunate enough to do so. I haven't actually won the Inverell Cup yet, so there might be another another adventure to go on the cards. Mm. Now, your dad, Andrew, has no racing background at all, but members of his family were involved with pleasure horses. So Dad knew the difference between a head stall and a hoof. Yeah, that's right. Dad knew the basics about horses. And um, interesting thing, he was a, he was a surfer, however – his brothers and sisters and um, that whole side of the family were into horse breaking and educating horses and, and they're very good at what they do. Mm. Dad's a qualified mechanic and he's an old-fashioned jack-of-all-trades and quite often you send an SOS for his services. He's happy to jump in the car and drive from Lawrence to the Gold Coast to help out. He's still spoiling your rotten, eh? That's right. He's um he's a major part of my life, Dad. We call him his name's Andrew and we call him Handy Andy because <laughs> if there's something if there's something broken, he will fix it. And um it, I'm just so lucky to have him in my life, you know, like like you've just stated, he'll he'll come up home and, and you just quickly put up the list of everything that's broken around the place and, and when he when he leaves everything will be all fixed up. So um I think that's something I'm very lucky to have in my life and He's also a very down-to-earth, good-natured human being. I don't know one person that said they don't like my dad, you know. Everyone just warms to him straight away and I, I feel that I owe that side of my career to him because obviously in racing you have to build up a lot of connections and, and you've got to have people on, on your team and wanting to support you and, and I've been lucky enough to have that and, and I think that personality trait he's, he's, he's instilled into me. You often ride at Northern Rivers meetings. You turn up at Grafton and Coffs Harbour and Ballina and Mwillumbar, a lot of the meetings on the Northern Rivers. Do mum and dad come along and watch? Um, funny enough, they, like dad's pretty much, he's watched me here and there. Uh, he has occasionally, if I'm racing at Grafton, he'll go and he'll just park the car along the side and mm. not actually go onto the course. He'll just watch from the side of the road and give me a bit of a cheer and mm. um but mum mum's come along probably just as often like they they're not um you know they're not the sort of parents that are at every meeting and no. and watching my every race ride and I actually think that's been beneficial in a way because it keeps me grounded and and it is 
extra special when they do come along because I'm not having them at every single meeting. I'm just there doing my job and trying to do it well. And and when they when they are able to make it, it, it certainly makes it extra special. So they're not stage parents. No, definitely not. No. You were a whiz at pony club as a kid, but surprisingly, you preferred hacking to the faster sporting activities. I would have imagined you'd want to rip and tear in the barrels and the bending, and all of the faster games. I certainly still did so, and I and I did quite well at, at um, jumping and and at sporting as well. I was always I was a good all rounder on my pony club horse, which I still have him today out of my property at thirty one years old. Also, mm. and he he and I we we did do everything well, but. The interesting thing was what I enjoyed most was always preparing my horse for the events. I love, you know, making him pretty and plaiting him up and all that yeah. side of it. I love just spending that quality time with him before I get out and on his back. And mm. I must admit, racing, I'm a little bit the opposite. I think I prefer being on their back and, and out in the race than I do strapping, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Now, here is the most amazing part of the Tegan Harrison story. In your teens, you became involved in the delicate art of re-educating ex-racehorses for people who wanted them for the show ring or for pleasure. You didn't like them at all. You thought they were scatty, highly strung, uncooperative and unpleasant. Exactly. Um, they're, they're definitely challenging when you take a racehorse off the track and you re-educate educate them to try and do the disciplines of the likes of pony club and dressage and showing and jumping. Um, but I do think now that I've had the experience of both disciplines, I've been into racing and the other side, mm. I must say I've, I've got some off the track now and, and I, I think I have a lot more patience with the animal now that I understand what they, what they are taught through racing, just mm. the basics. Like we like our ponies to stand still while you, while you, get on the horse well racehorses aren't taught to stand still while you get on we walk them the, around the parade ring to show mm. them off and we're getting on on the move yeah which which i think has been a really big thing for me um you know now with my horse off the track he's doing really well and i think that a big part of it is now understanding and being a lot more patient with them when you're getting them off the track and you really can turn them into whatever you want mm. um i was probably a little misunderstood when i was younger and and calling them uneducated and, and handfuls, but I feel like part of it was I needed to be educated as well. Yeah, good on you. When the time arrived for young Tegan to choose a career path, you opted for nursing, the noble art of nursing, and you enrolled for a course at the Southern Cross University's Coffs Harbour campus. But the uni fees soon demolished your meagre savings and you knew you had to find a part-time job pronto. What did you do? So this was um, a really hard time in my life where I was literally going to uni with not a coin in my pocket, and and I thought, what am I going to do? I want to continue my studies, but I can't afford this. And and I thought, oh, there's one thing I do know how to do, and that's ride a horse. So mm. I headed off to the Grafton track and started doing track work uh, just just for some extra money to get me through uni and it just the whole thing done a backflip I, I seen a different side to racing I, I really just grew the passion for it which was probably always instilled in me and I like to think of it as a bit of divine timing when it actually came out I was yeah a lot more mature when I when I established this love for the racing game and mm. 
you know, I'd, I'd done a complete spin around. I ended up deferring my uni course and, and off I went and became an apprentice jockey instead. It just, it, it started off from the little things, riding a horse track work and then, you know, taking it to the racing races and just the excitement of, of watching it run and, and especially when they do well, like the thrill of it's just, just something you, mm. you know, that feeling is just something that you just don't get every day. Nope. Your first boss was Bruce Hill, who's still training on the Gold Coast. Now, you say you learned about horses in your time there and you also learned a few lessons in life. Now, what's this funny little story you told me about finding a pair of your shoes in the wheelie bin one day at the stables? Bruce was, uh, he was an outstanding for a boss for me. I, I didn't think so at the time because he certainly, um, I guess you'd say, brought me up the hard way. But there was a lot of things coming from the country that I needed to polish up on. And um, I do like to tell younger apprentices coming through the importance of this as well. I wasn't very tidy in my appearance at track work or, <laughs> or even at work itself. And, and yeah. I didn't think it was all that important. Like I said, I came from the country. You wear what you want. I used to wear my pajamas down to the local tavern and pick up my dinner. It didn't bother me. <laughs> and I see nothing wrong in doing so. So then I, I apprenticed to Bruce and he had a real issue with my ripped jeans at track work and things like this. And I turned up for an afternoon shift one day and I was all ready to go and I had no shoes. And I said, where are my shoes? I left them at work. And one of the other workers took me over to the bin and he goes, oh, are these your shoes in here? And I went, yeah, they're my shoes. What are they doing in there? And mm. he said, oh, Bruce, Bruce threw them out because you wouldn't get rid of them okay. and they're no good. And I thought they had a couple of years left in them, but <laughs> <laughs> he got rid of them and I had to go. He basically forced me to go and buy new shoes for, for yeah. work in the afternoons. But, yeah, I think presentation's a big thing. And to be fair, I should have known better yeah. because even through Pony Club years when you're younger, you always learn to, like I said, present your horse well. Yeah. But I probably was a little bit slack on the side of presenting myself well. Mm, well, it worked because Bruce Hill transformed you from a kid with holes in her shoes to one of racing's fashion plates. I've seen you arrive at racetracks in more recent history and looking nothing like you did in the early days at Bruce Hill Stables. A hundred percent, and I think I owe a little bit of that to Ben as well. You know, I had I had Bruce and Ben both on my case throughout my whole apprenticeship, all the little things like that. I remember one thing Ben used to say was to me, um, if you can't ride, look like you can. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I also had, I had it coming from both sides, everyone telling me to tidy up and at least turn up to the races looking smart and like you know what you're doing. Mm. And I, I, managed, I must have managed to trick enough people to get my career established. <laughs> Here is an unpleasant memory for you that I'm about to resurrect. Your first race ride just over 10 years ago was at Lismore and it's one you would much prefer to forget. Absolutely. And I'd love to say I've never rode one so bad again, but along the way there might have been one or two. Mm. <laughs> the, my first race ride was um, certainly one to remember. I've headed off down to Lismore and thought I was all prepared for the day and off I went and it is a it is an interesting story all the same. I'm I'm quite well known now for being good on a front runner and my first race ride was the complete opposite. I, I went up to my my friend, fellow rider Priscilla Smith, and I just eyeballed her the entire way until my horse fell in a heap. Um, <laughs> I got one part right. We were going fast and I thought that's the idea. You're in a race. You want to go as fast as you can. You gotta yeah. let the fastest horse win. Well, 
little did I know there's a lot more to it than that. Your first winner was a mare called Princess Jailer in a Gundawindi Maiden on the 7th of August 2010. Trainer was Barry Strong. I think you won a double on the day, didn't you? I won. Um, so prior to that, I'd done a stint in Mount Isa. Yeah. And my first winner was at Julia Creek. Oh, yes. I forgot. And then mm. I, I rode a double at Julia Creek that day. And the first one was a horse called St. George. Mm. Um, it was actually an interesting story in its own. Uh, I couldn't get a ride even when I shifted up there to try and get going. Obviously, my Lismore debut didn't really uh, encourage trainers to give me a go. <laughs> so so I headed up, up there and I remember this horse. I rode him the week before and he ran third. And I think that was the first time a horse had actually picked up a place for me. And so mm. I said to the trainer, I said, oh, what, what are you doing next weekend? And he said, oh, he's retired now. That's him done. He's finished. I said, oh, I've got no rides. Is there any chance you can send him around again for me? Mm. And I, I was very lucky because he did. It, it was It's quite a cool story because he took him to Julia Creek the following week. The horse mm. backed up. The trainer travelled far and wide to get there and, and he won. And then the horse mm. actually did retire and he retired on a note of winning and, and it was yeah. also my first winner. So it was it was a very special story, and then you know the the couple of races after I won again. So it was yeah. it was a it was a bit of a wait for me to get there, but when I did, it was all worthwhile. Julia Creek, I'm, I mean, it's in the outback. I think Burke and Wills had a stop over at Julia Creek. It is definitely the outback. <laughs> it yeah. was a good place to start. And then came Princess Jailer in the Gundawindi Maiden in August of two thousand and ten. And then the elusive first city winner came along for trainer Ben Mason. It was a mare called Abalak, and she won a maiden two-year-old at Doombin, 28th of March 2012. Gosh, eight years ago, Tegan. It's crazy looking back um, when you put it like that, but that's another horse that I, I was um, very lucky to have Ben's support at the time, and I, I, I kicked off with a bit of a bang in town because of that, because I sort of went straight there with my three kilo claim. I'd outridden my provincial and country claim by then and mm. went straight there with my three kilos and got off on, on the right foot and that definitely opened up more opportunities for me thereafter. Hard to believe that it was only two years after uh, Abalak when you were riding Temple of Boom in Group 1s, the Stradbroke and the 10,000, you ran second in both and I bet the old heart was pumping. Oh, absolutely. There's there's no better feeling. Like it's the atmosphere of them big meetings and those big racings is just like no other. And and to to be able to have experienced that, I'm I'm forever grateful. You outrode your claims very quickly, as you said. How tough did it get after the claims disappeared? Well, I owed it to the horse you just mentioned. I I was lucky enough. I I run out of my claim and little um few horses come along at the right time. I actually believe one of them was Rudy as well. I, I got on a couple of really nice horses just at the the time when I needed to and they, they kicked me on. Uh, I lost my claim and a week later I rode a double in town and yeah. and I think it did just, you know, it, it just put it back to a lot of people that, yep, she can do it without the claim as well. So mm. it just helped me keep kicking on there for a while and I think that was my best ever season was actually my first year out of my apprenticeship, which mm. is not common. Um, no. And and that that's why I owe it to the horses like, you know, Temple of Boom and Queen of Locks and, 
uh, Rudy, all those horses just come along at the right time and just kept me kicking through that tougher period. Mm. Temple of Boom gave you a Group 2 win, I think the first time you ever rode him, wasn't it? The Victory Stakes. Yeah, I'll never forget when Tony called me and he said my name was in the hat to ride Temple of Boom and mm. I hung up the phone and I was jumping and screaming and like, you know, like I'd already won on him and at that stage he hadn't even confirmed the ride. He just said my name was in the ring and I think when you've got that sort of energy for something, it, it does come through like it goes through the horse and when you're riding like it's like everyone spoke about how it's like he had a new lease of life and I think that was the excitement that of me being able to pick up the ride on him it's like he was never going to not win Mm. that day. You were beaten only half a head in the Stradbroke by River Lad. Yes I'll never forget that either I said a few choice words after the line. (laughs) (laughs) You knew you'd been beaten. I knew I'd been beaten and, and like I said, I, I probably was a little bit um, frustrated after going over the line and I'll never forget um, when, uh, I think it might have been, it was either Glenn Boss or Damien had won the race and one of them turned around and looked and <laughs> I think he said in his interview, oh, I feel sorry for that girl who runs second because obviously my frustration was mm. was pretty pretty obvious. Tony Gollan took you to Melbourne with Temple of Boom. You rode him in four races in Melbourne you ran second in the Group 3 Bobby Lewis quality. I think he was unplaced in the others, but what a terrific experience at that stage of your career. Oh, it was it was unreal. And the horse had actually flew past me. I'll never forget that um, Bobby Lewis race. I was down to Flemington Strait and uh, I, I sort of kicked like I was going to win the race. And I actually, in my own head, mm. I, I got excited. I thought, I'm home. I, I'm going to win. And then this thing just come out from nowhere and just overtook us like we were standing still. And I've still run second. And I was thinking, what was that? What just happened? I, I was going to win. Yeah. And the horse happened to be Chautauqua. Yeah, Chautauqua. So Couldn't like, he in finish? Hindsight, yeah. Well, this is one of the real early wins of Chautauqua. And mm. it's just, this is why I love racing because, you know, you've got a story for every experience. And then mm. from there on, I always followed that horse's career and, and with a lot of interest, and and the heights that he reached in racing were just incredible. And and now I'm actually proud to have run second to Chautauqua, even though at yeah. the time I was like, could they not have left that horse at home? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just hold on there, Tegan. We'll clear a commitment on the podcast, and we'll be back with you very, very shortly. The 2020 Sydney Autumn Carnival will reach its zenith with the Star Championships at Royal Randwick over two exciting days, April 4 and April 11. A total of $20 million in prize money will be distributed with eight Group 1 races programmed. April 4, the Star Doncaster, the TJ Smith, the Australian Derby and the English Sires Produce. Co-feature will be the New Haven Park Country Championship Final. Saturday 11 features the Longines Queen Elizabeth Stakes, the Swept Sydney Cup, the Australian Oaks and the Coolmore Legacy Stakes. Co-feature event is the Polytrack Provincial Championship Final. The Championships, April 4 and April 11, the Grand Finals of Australian Racing. Tegan, before I forget, and I'm getting out of sequence a bit with this one, But before we leave your very early career, your formative years, there's one bloke we've got to mention, Malcolm Fitzgerald, who played a very significant role in your early riding career. 
He was a tutor for racing New South Wales. He got around to all parts of the state and you met him at Grafton. That's correct. He, um, like, obviously Malcolm was a friend of my mum's as well, um, having ridden himself. And he, um, I remember there was a time, I'm not quite sure my exact age, but I was coming up to when you're allowed to ride. I think I was like 15, 16. Mm. And Malcolm approached mum and said they're short on apprentices. Could you, your daughter, you know, obviously she rides horses. She's little. Let's let's get her involved. And like like what we stated earlier at the time, I, I was I was mucking around with my own horses and thought that race horses were pretty uneducated silly buggers at the time. And I didn't <laughs> want to have a bar of them. And yeah. they sort of tried to push me into it. And and I just all I I went to Karen Calligan down at Taree and and I just said to her, look, I'm I'm not interested in this. Can I? She had a dressage arena there, and I remember saying to her. Um, if I'm going to have to carry on doing this, could I please bring my horse up here and use your arena? And mm. and she had a good talk to me and Malcolm, and I said, look, it's just not for me. And she, mm. um, yeah, she spoke to him, and, and I and I went home. And then it was some five years later or something like that when I actually started my career. And I remember I had to. Malcolm was still in his role of having the apprentices down there and I had to go and like I've realised I absolutely love racing and I love the racehorses by this mm. stage. And so I come to Malcolm and I said, oh, look, I want to be an apprentice. And as you'd imagine, it was a bit of a battle to get myself over the line in that first little challenge. He said, no, you're not doing this to me again. I said, no, <laughs> this is the difference. I want to be an apprentice jockey now before I didn't. And and I've carried that throughout my career, I, I believe, like if you really want to do something, you'll do it well. You've got to have your full heart invested in it. And mm. and I think we, we spoke um myself and, and you were speaking the other day and even mm. even with your career and, and the heights you've reached, your passion is to race call and you've just done extraordinary things with that. And I feel like it's the same for me now with racing. If you want to do it and you put your mind to it, it's amazing what you can achieve because a lot of the early stories of my career and whatnot would think I, I do remember several times being told to give up it's not for you just give up and I pushed on and I really wanted it this time and and look at look at what unfolded so mm-hmm. yeah I'm a I'm a big one for being passionate about what you're doing always and if you ever lose that well don't do it do something else yeah very inspiring words for young people who might be listening to this podcast Tegan good on you I've shortlisted a few horses that I know are among your all-time favourites. Jamaican Rain was pretty good to you, trained by Richard Lamming at Cranbourn, but when he brought her to Queensland for the Glass House at the sunny coast, who did he put on? T. Harrison, and she bolted him. Yeah, I was really, I'm really lucky. I've had a, a bit of luck with the Lammings over my career. They've been good to me from my apprenticeship to now. They still are always there supporting me and, and um, so I was lucky enough I won a group race for Richard's father, Bevan. And mm. so when, when Jamaican Rain come up, I was um, – I'd actually just come back from injury. I was not long back from my broken collarbone from Ballina and mm. and I was really blessed to get on a horse like that just straight off the bat and, and win a race like that just, you know, early early in my rides back. So just, just remember that, everyone. I'm good when I come back from injury. <laughs> I go good fresh. No. But no, she was a very special horse to me for all those reasons. You know, it's always a bit difficult when you come back after having time off and, and to run into a mare like that was um, pretty exciting. Well, some time later, 
Richard paid you the great compliment of flying you to Adelaide to ride her in the famous Goodwood Handicap at Morfordville. She had no luck on that occasion. Yeah, she had no luck on that occasion. And um, like, but it was again like the the trips that I went with Temple down to Melbourne. It's the experience that mattered. I never went. I'd never ridden there. I I had a few rides on the day. It was um, something completely different and and puts you out of your comfort zone, which I think is um, mm. definitely healthy in learning and moving forward in your career. You speak very fondly of Traveston Girl from the Golden Stable. You won three races on her, a two-year-old race, a listed recognition stakes and a listed Brisbane handicap all at Doombin. She was pretty smart. She was. I, I just admired that horse. Like I might not have won my biggest races on her, but there was just something about her that I felt like she was just the whole package. She was a really good type of mare. She she was beautiful to ride. She was she was big and strong, and I, and I really liked the style that she raced in. She had a very high cruising speed, and she could run out a mile strong. And and she just yeah, she I, I definitely had a spot, soft spot for that filly. Mm. Another favourite from Tony Stable was Didn't Cost a Lot. You won four races on him, all at Doombin, including the Group Three George Moore. Yeah, he was great. I was I was very lucky actually. Tony associated me with a lot of the, a lot of the good horses. I was lucky enough to ride, and and he was a great story. He, the owners didn't pay much for him, hence his name. He'd come up to to Brisbane for a new lease of life. Um, after his form starting to taper off down in Sydney, and then he ended up reaching new heights of of winning a Group Three, and and like he's just he was just a really cool horse to be associated with because he sort of was a bit of um, I guess even right from the beginning he was a bit of the underdog, which I think everybody in racing likes the underdog. Rocket to Glory from the Golden Camp was also very good to you. Uh, you won three races on him, one of them at the Gold Coast, a couple at Doombin including the listed Chief De Beers, and you also ran third on him in a race you would dearly love to win, the Ramoni Handicap at Grafton. Yeah, that's right. Obviously, there's just something different about your hometown big races, and the Ramoni and Grafton Cup, unfortunately, is still on my list to win. Um, so everyone just remember that too, because July won't – I should be back racing by July, <laughs> so I'll be mm. looking for a good mount, but – I, you know, I've I've gone close. I had Rocket Rocket run well there, and I rode another horse, Rocky King, for a placing in the morning, and that was exciting on its own. But yeah, it'd be nice to get on one that could win it. Hey, what about that Ruffy? Uh, you won a good race on Tattersall's Cup at Eagle Farm, a Group Three horse was called the Inventor for Bevan Lamming, and he started at forty-one dollars. Oh, it was a a massive thrill that day. Um, and it, and it shows why you've got to do your form. The horse come into the race, a lot of people thought he probably shouldn't even be in the race. And and Bevan and I, we'd done our form and luckily we were on the same page and mm. uh, turned up to get my instructions and I thought we should lead. And so he, the horse, had never led in its life, but the race just showed a lot that there was no no pace going to be put into this race. So, mm. so off we went and we led on the horse that had always raced from behind and he he got the cash at fifty to one. Like it was, mm. it was just a you know it was a great feeling because it, it we both backed our own judgment and came off. You know, we, it, mm. it could have been a disaster. He could have got to the top of the straight and folded up in a heap heap and not handled leading. But I just think if you're getting your paces right, then mm. those sort of horses can can change their um their racing pattern. Yep. 
You've had wonderful support and tuition from several senior riders in recent years, but there is one who has given unselfishly of his time. Yeah, I have to definitely um, give some credit to Jeff Lloyd. Mm. He's he's um, He's been a major part of my greatest success stories. He was, you know, I'd already been fine-tuned early by Ben and Bruce and and then that season where I had the best season I ever had was happened to tie in when Jeff had had a stroke and he, he used his time off to assist me with my riding and mm. and I just I'd never had a better year. He's he's a very good rider and he's he's also a very good teacher and I'm lucky enough that I have his support and and I've had his tuition throughout the years because I certainly have learned a lot lot off him mm. that's helped me win on some horses that maybe couldn't have won without the advice I had. Yeah, what an absolute marvel is Jeff Lloyd. He suffered a very serious stroke and he came back to win three Brisbane Jockeys Premierships. He's just an incredible person. He's not mm. just an incredible jockey. If you, you meet Jeff and his family, the whole the whole family unit, they're just really good down to earth people and mm. and they you know, it's it's really nice to see people that are like that do as well as he has. Now, there is a certain former jockey, currently a trainer, to whom we have to give some acknowledgement in this podcast, and I refer to Ben Hull, your partner, who is training a small team on the Gold Coast, and he's pretty good at the caper. Yeah, he's um, done a lot of it. Done a lot with John Moore over in Hong Kong when he come out of his apprenticeship, mm. and and I think he he's taken away a lot of um, a lot of advice from there that he uses in his training today, and and it certainly pays off. Like he he doesn't have a big team; he's only got room to have seven horses maximum, but he mm. he mucks around with them and and tries to place them where they can win, and and he's lucky enough that his his strike rate's not too bad. Ben was apprenticed to Tracy Bartley. In the early days, he rode about 200 winners before weight beat him, uh, but he continued as a work rider. He travelled a lot in that capacity, as you've just said. And does he still jump on one at the track? He does. He actually, um, at the moment, he he rides for Toby and Trent Edmonds before he goes over and does his team Mm. um, after he's finished doing that. So he's working very hard and he's, um, like, I think he's really enjoying riding track work because he's, He's been associated with a lot of good horses and he's ridden track work of a lot of those horses like Sniper's Bullet. He'd done mm. most of his track work and, like I said, he travelled with John Moore's horses. He even took care of them when they come over to Australia. Mm. He's, I think he's, he enjoys riding horses with ability and, and, um, and you know, he's, very, he's a very good judge. He's good at summing up where they should head and what, what they might be capable of. Mm. He, he's also an old romantic because just recently he approached you with a small package in one hand, he went down on one knee and delivered the proposal that you were thinking would never come. That's right. He said, I've been with Ben throughout my whole riding career, so it's um, definitely something that I didn't see coming. I'd given up hope. And <laughs> I think the funny thing about that is going back to racing, you just never give up hope because right when you think it's not going to happen, bang, there it goes. And mm. and it, that was what my engagement was like. Yeah. I thought this is never going to happen for me and right when I least expect it, there it was. So yeah. Now, Tegan, well for those interested, 
describe the ring to us. Well, it's um, I'm not very good with this stuff. I don't wear much jewelry, but it is an engagement ring. Yep. I'm I'm not so sure. I've got a lot of friends who say that it's really nice, and then we we went down and visited my nan this morning, and she asked. Ben and I, did we get it from a toy shop? So now that's thrown a bit of confusion <laughs> for me. I'm, I'm going to have to go and get Ben to show me the receipts here. Yeah. But, no, it's a beautiful ring. She was just stirring us up. So diplomacy is not one of Nan's strong points. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you two are officially engaged. Congratulations. We're officially engaged, yes. And have you Thank set you. a date? No, we haven't. We just um, we've got a few friends having weddings this year, so it won't be this year, but... um. But it's definitely something to look forward to in mm. in the next two years, say. There are many jockeys who are extremely jealous of the fact that you can eat breakfast before you go to the races. What a blessing. It is a blessing and I have to be mindful. I'm probably fortunate where I've got, you know, Ben as my partner because obviously he had to watch his weight when he was a jockey and it's good that he makes me a little bit mindful because I remember um, I, I often travel with Michael Carl, who he works hard at his weight, and and I've accidentally done this to him a few times en route to the races. I'll say, oh, any chance we can stop off at Hungry Jack's or KFC? And oh, I didn't realise at the time that the smell and all that kind of stuff in the car would just be killing him, but M- Michael yeah. was polite enough to pull over for me and and let me get some food. Oh, so, that is not fair, um, Tegan. I'm lucky that Ben's made me aware that that's actually a really cruel thing to do, so I oh. try to not do that sort of thing anymore, and I try to be respectful of the riders who, who do have to work really hard at keeping their weight down, and, and I do consider myself very lucky that that's, that's something I don't have to worry about. I can just have my strength up and get on the horse and away I go. Well, for a kid who really didn't like thoroughbreds initially, it's been a fantastic journey for you to the ranks of Australia's top female jockeys. And you can't wait to get back, can you? Oh, 100%. Like, I'm, I'm very itchy to get back on now. And uh, my surgeon's just very strict with how, how I handle this fake ligament to make sure that it's going to be as strong as it can be when I return, which I fully understand that. But if I had my way, I'd be back on them now. I wonder if we should put a tweet on. Uh, in the off chance that Donald Trump might see it, he'll be very interested in the medical description of your recent uh, shoulder procedure, a fake, <laughs> a fake ligament. It is very interesting. It's um, <laughs> the the funny thing is a lot of um, what I've since learned with my physio, a lot of footballers actually have the fake ligament. Mm. It's a common injury in footballers to have the tear and they go have the surgery and they have the ligament put in place, mm. but they don't have the break with it because obviously most of the time they've just torn the ligament off. So yeah, yeah. it's a, it's an interesting little injury. When do you think we'll see Tegan Harrison under silk again? I go for x-rays in on the 13th of this month. Right. Uh, if they come up clear, we're going to be looking to – try and get back on the horses and still do a fair bit of, I guess you'd call it groundwork, not not on the ground, but like on their backs. No. He wants me to do a lot of track work and really build my strength up before I start. Because it is my left arm and I race in Queensland, I, I use the whip in my left hand mm. most of the time. Yep. So we want that to be, you know, perfect when I return. So we'll do a lot of track work and build my strength up and see how he'll, he'll check in again. 
and just see how it's all holding together. If everything's holding together well, he will then allow me to start using my whip and really swinging that arm around. So the biggest thing he's working on, which I appreciate, Mm. is my range of motion. And that just shows me that I also have a really good physio because he's he's gone into depth about what we need to be able to do with that arm as a jockey. And, yes. like, you've quite literally got to swing your arm around. So, mm. you know, with the injury I have, it's important that I get 100% range of motion back. And mm. and he, he's pretty happy with my progress so far. So, Now, Tegan, we've been chatting for quite a while. How's the 12-hand pony as he hasn't jumped out of the float? I better go check he's still on there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Tegan, it's been an absolute <laughs> delight. It's lovely of you to break your journey uh, to record this podcast with us. It's long overdue. Congratulations on all you've done, and I look forward to watching you in action again very, very soon. Thank you, and it was an honour to talk to you. Thank you. Tegan Harrison on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.